Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back, everyone, to a special holiday edition of the Hidden History Happy Hour. We're keeping it festive over here. On to football. Alex, welcome back. Thank you very much. Great to be back. World Cup in full uh, flow now. We're going to tell a football story in a little while. Yes, can't wait. And uh, I was going to start out the show by saying, hey, it's a season of upsets, and we don't mean the U.S. elections. Boy, oh boy, Germany performing very, very badly. Argentina performing very, very badly. Um, we, By the time this podcast drops, we'll know the result of the England-America game. Thank goodness we don't know it yet because it would then have just <laughs> this podcast would have fallen apart into a series of abusive remarks either way. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's looking, you've got to say cautiously, it's looking pretty good for England. Um, you know, I don't Germans know. I don't know. I don't know. I think Coach Lasso is going to pull us out. We'll look. We'll we'll see. I don't. I make no predictions about England, the USA, but I, I would say you know Italy's not even there. Germany chronically underperforming. Argentina really struggling. Same as Brazil. You know, so all of a sudden the the countries that you thought were going to dominate uh, are touching wood as everywhere. But uh, it's looking all right for England. Iran and Saudi Arabia with wins. I know, amazing, Ab- absolutely, and uh, amazing. Uh, Japan beat Germany. <laughs> i'm sure there's an axis joke in there somewhere but yeah, i can't uh, I, I, I can't, not a safe one <laughs> i can't pull it fast enough so listen as everyone knows you've been uh gone for a while um across the seas tell us about uh the nuptials tell us about the honeymoon and uh, by, by the way was, cheers congratulations cheers. Um, thank you very much and for the first time in uh, the recording of our podcast I, i'm on the softs i'm i can't drink anymore after <laughs> two weeks of honeymoon <laughs> uh, we had a wonderful wedding thank you it was missing one american but uh yes, other, other than that that's all right other than that it was uh it was great um, we're married in um, St. Bartholomew the Great, uh, which is just by St. Bart's Hospital, a uh, great historic site, if you, if our listeners know uh, that. And um, in fact, people will know it because when Duckface punches out Hugh Grant at the end of Four Weddings and a Funeral, that's the church. It's in, okay. it's in, in that church. It's a magnificent, beautiful church, really uh, tremendous choir, um, a perfect setting. And then we had a reception at the Garden Museum, which is a, a, a very attractive venue here in London. And we went for our honeymoon in the Seychelles for two weeks, which is just perfect. So yeah. I'm a very lucky and a very happy man. And you were quite unplugged. There was no, um, even your social media was pretty quiet. I know. Don't worry, it won't happen again. <laughs> it's just a <laughs> com- complete, uh, a complete one-off. But it was, it was lovely to, it was lovely to do that. And I want to say a big thanks to Mike Cole for uh, stepping in and uh, filling my seat uh, for a Cole, couple of weeks. Cheers. Couldn't have thought of a better guy to, um, to step in. Great historical knowledge, and I thought you guys did some super episodes. So thank you. Yeah, we had we had, we had a great time. Just by coincidence, he he knew the author of that horror novel that I, I recommended. And get the book out of club. town. No, yeah. he knew the book very well. He had publicly reviewed it about six or seven years ago, and he knows uh, no Paul Tremblay, the author. Yeah, and uh, for those who didn't catch one of those episodes, get that book next year at Halloween, Head Full of Ghosts. It's amazing. Speaking right. as you were of Hugh Grant, Alex, 
Uh, as we record this, it's the day after Thanksgiving in the U.S. of A. And um, as you can see, one of the Cunningham traditions is we ban all things Christmas until Thanksgiving. And then the morning after, we go after it. So I've had Christmas carols playing for two hours. We've got the tree up. Have to ask you, love actually, love it or hate it? Terrible film. Terrible. Sends terrible, terrible, terrible film. Sends all the world, world bad messages about everything. All, almost all the plot lines are just deeply depressing and, and awful. Uh, I think it's dreadful. The, the true Christmas film is, of course, Die Hard. Of course, uh, that, yes. that is the that is the best Christmas movie, and it's the movie that I shall watch at Christmas. Of course, I I agree. It is a Christmas movie. I'm down, I'm down on that side of the question. I wouldn't say it's the best Christmas movie. I prefer a few over that. Elf is one uh also uh um, here speaks a man with children uh, of, no, that's true that's true well what about it's a wonderful life that's a that's my mother's favorite film um uh, and therefore i have at least until i went to university and so forth i i watched it every single year with my mom um are your savings on law um, i <laughs> i um yeah i like that film very very much and it's what a it's a wonderful ending um yeah. and there were people rally around and um I think it's a super film, but no, Die Hard's even better. And I don't know how many know this story, but Jimmy Stewart, very late in his life, said that the filming of that movie, which was right after World War II, mm. uh, saved his life because he was, as you probably know, a much decorated bomber pilot in the war, yes. uh, but heavily traumatized. Today, we would say PTSD and he'd be able to get help. But in those days, it was, you know, shell shock and no one talked about it. And he said late in life, he was on the verge of suicide. Good and uh, and it was working with Frank Capra on that film and that, the plot uh, of that film, that which is about what what happens if you were to wheel yourself away. Yeah, gosh, right. We should tell a story. Do it. Uh, football, World Cup uh, here. So here's uh, the football story from my new book. Uh, more lessons from history, and um, so I will be receiving next week. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> uh, it's about a uh, Chris Nickel who played for Aston Villa um, It's in the 1970s. Uh, Aston Villa, by the way, is in Birmingham, where my uh, now wife is from. Yeah. And uh, he was a defender, and his name, therefore, didn't appear on the score sheet all that often. And so my story is the, it's the day he scored four times, and he was the only scorer that day in a game that ended in a draw. We'll work that out. I'll explain. <laughs> Villa playing Leicester, 20th of March, 1976. Chris Nichols scores an own goal. He concedes. He scores an own goal to put Leicester in front. And then, remarkable, he restores the balance with an equaliser up the other end just before the whistle blows for half-time. And you can imagine the ribbing you get from your teammates at half-time when you've scored both goals in the half uh, in the dressing room. At little did they know. Shortly after play is resumed, Leicester is on the attack, Nickel finds himself in the unenviable position of scoring what he quite rather charmingly, disarmingly uh, refers to as a perler of an own goal, striker's goal, diving <laughs> header. He said no goalie in the world would have saved that. It's a perfect goal, just unfortunately at the wrong end of the pitch. So that's his third goal. Uh, and uh, of course, only Leicester's second, putting uh, the opposition in front. And fortunately uh, for him, uh, no doubt by this point, the assembled spectators of the grounds are waiting with bated breath to see what this guy does next. Chris Nichols' fourth goal that day goes in the net at the right end of the pitch, resulting in a draw. <laughs> Two goals for each team, only name on the score sheet. And one rather wonders what Villa fans and his 
teammates uh made of things that day and I, there's an amusing postscript to it we, um so the, he's the only man who I, I, i've scoured the annals of a football history he's the only man known to have scored four goals in a two all draw and nickel naturally wanted to keep the match ball and he asked the referee and the ref said no it's my last game i want it for myself <laughs> and nickel said yeah just my luck my first hat trick in a villa shirt and i don't even get to keep the ball um so lesson uh, from this story, consider the way that he's discussed the game afterwards. This is his claim to fame, right? It's how he's become immortalised in football history. In the face of criticism and adversity, if it really is all down to you, you should own it with frankness and directness and lightheartedness because it's both charming and disarming. But also do try to stop scoring own goals. <laughs> and so what became of him? Oh, he's, you know, just, uh, he was, a, he was a, I don't think it's too harsh to say he was a, a well-performing journeyman footballer, retired from football, played, you know, played out his innings. But, uh, you know, it, it's never been, uh, it's never a feat that's never been matched since. There's an interesting, uh, I compare and contrast it with Dennis Law, who was a, one of the pantheon of great players and um, was in the FA Cup uh, fourth round tie um, in the UK. And he um, he scored six times uh, for his side, Ma- um, Manchester City. Um, okay, it was Man City Luton, and he scored six times before playing conditions, which were absolutely appalling, meant that the match uh, was abandoned six-two. Uh, interesting, but mm. ironically, but you know, coincidentally, the, the score that England just just won by uh, in the World Cup. So this, this, it was six-two, and he put five. He'd, he'd scored all six, and um, the match was abandoned. And then he'd never scored six goals in a game before, and he never did again. And it was in a cancelled game. The fixture was replayed, um, ironically, on a pitch that was, if anything, even worse. And this time the authorities said, get on with it. It's a replay. We can't, we're not going to come back and, and do this again. And um, Dennis Law scored again, but they still lost 3-1. So he scored seven goals across two games and still lost. Huh. Well, you know, the first story reminds me a little bit about uh, of one of my favorite sports movies uh, called Tin Cup, which oh, yeah. I don't know if you've seen this. Kevin it's golf Costner, movie, right? it's Kevin yeah, Costner. <laughs> and Rene Russo and Cheech from Cheech and Chong. And uh, it, it supports my theorem that Kevin Costner has never made a bad sports movie or a good almost any other movie. Uh, the Untouchables um, is the exception. Yeah, almost the, Untouchable, the Untouchables is wonderful. Yeah, he also, hang is. on, he also he made a good Western um, well, so so yeah, Dances with Wolves, uh, one in a cast. Oh no, no, you're talking about Silverado, that. Silverado. Yeah, yeah. That's, with that's Danny a, that's Glover a and a cast of thousands. Yeah, that's a good film. But I, I mean, The Untouchables is great. But you, I like your theory about about him making good sports movies. That's Tin Cup is the movie where he he has this stupid bet with the the club bore who yeah. hits the ball down the road. Right? Am I remembering? Yeah, yeah he says, I yep, can drive yep. further than you. Yeah, and Doc uh, Johnson from Miami Vice. Right. Yeah. But the relevant part of it is he's he's dating his psychiatrist, Rene Russo, and they he gets, you know, against all odds, he makes it to the PGA championship or the Masters or whatever. I think it's the Masters. And uh, and he, he he his entire career, he's been undone by his own perfectionism. And right. so he's he's hits this water shot. He's guaranteed to be in the tournament next year. He's back in his career. He hits this water shot, goes in the water. Instead of taking a drop, hits it again, goes in again. And an agonizing six minutes of film time later, he is put 11 balls uh, into, into the water. Or 10, right. maybe. And he's now disqualified himself from the future tournament. 
and he uh, finally hits the ball on the green and he scores a 12, which is just, you know, unheard of in professional golf. Even I don't score 12s. Um, and, uh, and Rene Russo cheering him up uh, says, listen, a hundred years from now, no one's going to remember anyone at this tournament, but they're going to remember your 12. Right. Well, we should, uh, one of these days we'll do my golf story, which you, you uh, may recall. In Love fact, that story. the credits, of course, to my, my book, it's getting made into a movie. Ah, um, yeah, love that's, it. that's there's nothing to do with my book, but, uh, but uh, it's getting made into a movie. But we want to tell a, a different story today. You wanted me to tell um, a different story. So we're going to take the mood in a very different direction now. And um, I want to honor the direction or honor the story by opening a bottle of Ledeg Scotch whiskey that my fiance, Lisa, a uh, little development since our last show, my fiance got me. And um, I'm going to pour just a little bit. I'm not a big scotch drinker, but in honor of the men that you're going to talk about, I will have this at the ready. That's a suitable uh, that's a suitable one. And indeed, uh, I got this story from uh, my now wife's uncle. So my uh, my wife's father's brother um, told me the story. Um, New Year's Day, 1919. Uh, His Majesty's yacht, uh, Iolare, uh, which is Scots Gaelic for Eagle, was transporting the men of the Isle of Lewis home after the First World War. Heavily overloaded with soldiers and sailors who were keen to get home, she set out uh, from the port at Kyle of uh, Loch Alch on the British mainland's northwest coast. Um, and the conditions were terrible and they were sailing at night. And a mile from the harbour at Stornoway, the main settlement on Lewis, much closer to the shore than that, for reasons that are still disputed, you know, was it bad navigation, was it negligence, um, the ship struck the rocks known as the Beasts of Holm and swiftly sank. Over 200 men drowned. Um, the records were quite poorly kept in these heady days of relief after the war. And with so many people, so many men overwhelmingly, keen to return to normal life, who had seized upon whatever route had become available to them, and those responsible for transport were naturally sympathetic, the servicemen in front of them, and turning a blind eye and thinking they were doing somebody a favour. Many, some people lacked the proper papers, so we'll never know for absolutely sure how many um, souls were lost. But the island uh, lost at least 181 of her native sons, and, and perhaps more. Uh, but the official number of Lewis uh, casualties were 181. Um uh, and as I say, more than a 200 overall. It's effectively for a, an island like that, you know, it's half a generation wiped out at a, at a stroke. And they died well after the armistice that ended the war in which they had fought. I find it unbearable to think about that night. You know, the men were in uniforms, um, heavy boots included. Many of them couldn't swim. The lights of Stornoway, the lights of home, would have been plainly visible to those who Oof. drowned so close to the end of their journey after all that they'd endured. And their families were, of course, there waiting for them in knots of happy, expectant people in the harbour. And instead of the reunion that they had expected, the women of Lewis found the body of the bodies of their menfolk washed ashore the next day. And the devastation wrought upon Lewis is unimaginable, and the tragic sinking of the ILRA is the worst loss of life in British waters in peacetime. 
there is um there is a hero uh, to the story too a man called john mcleod who was a lewis man swam through those treacherous waters uh from the ship as she went under carrying a line ashore which was grasped desperately by those waiting for the ship and some 40 men made their way wow. to safety on that lifeline from the wreck who would otherwise most likely have been added to the death toll two um postscripts the first is that those who survived suffered terribly on their depleted island um, facing the families of those who died was inevitably exceptionally hard in this tiny community and whilst island life might not have offered all that young people wished for after the war I think it's impossible to think that the depression into which this event plunged the island, plunged the people of Lewis, was not responsible in large part for the departure of some 300 further of her sons for Canada in 1923. So Lewis suffered doubly for this post-war tragedy and um, the depletion of her population was, was savage. In 2019, the, the Duke of Rothsay, then also known as Prince Charles, now known as King Charles, um, attended a ceremony to mark the centenary of the disaster and unveiled a memorial to the dead um, on the island. And it includes a depiction of MacLeod's lifeline. The wreck of the ship is there by the rocks to this day, plainly visible from the Lewis shore, another grim memorial to the destruction of the men born of the island by which she sank. Mm. That is oh. my saddest story. Salute to them. Salute to them. And to their families. And this really <clears throat> brings home the horror of war, not just on the folks fighting it, but on the folks back home. And I'm sure, I don't know if it's recorded or not, but I'd be shocked if there weren't a number of suicides uh, over the ensuing decades in that in that town and probably some by men who survived. Yeah, it's a... It's a wretched one, isn't it? The, the the lights of home being visible as you flounder in the water. It's just um, uh, it's a it's the hardest story to um, to write and to tell. And um, to my shame, I've not yet been um, to those islands, but I would like to go very much. Anyway, and now um, as would we'll, I. Yeah, good. Well, perhaps we'll perhaps we'll go together. Um, anyway, um, good to be back. Great to be telling stories again. Uh, the books are both um, selling well, and uh, I look forward to doing more episodes. If people have suggestions to which stories they want us yes. to tell, uh, they should get in touch. I want to say thanks again to Mike Cole. Brian, thanks for your patience. Great Smart. to be back. Great to be back. Follow us on uh, Twitter and uh, subscribe to us on YouTube and Spotify and enjoy the show. And please, as Alex says, participate. Uh, message us. Give us suggestions for stories. I'm sure... Um, more and more lessons from history is already underway. So perhaps uh, lessons from history three, I think we might call that. <laughs> cool awesome. Just simply trip. Yep. All right, everybody. All right. Uh, happy holidays to you. We'll see you soon. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Kaur, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.